Good afternoon, universe, and welcome to another episode of Cross Defense, your weekly dose of worldview demolition, where we break down the stronghold, bad opinions of the enemy, and set up shop with the mighty fortress of our Lord's Word. I'm your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk, and we are going to continue our trek into the, the wonderful depths of Christian dogma, believing that when our God speaks, uh, he, he's not a mute idol. He speaks in words we can hear, we can understand, and we can even speak them back. We call that confessing. As St. Paul encouraged us to hunger for the truth, to watch your life and doctrine closely, because there is a time coming, in fact, it's already here, when people are not going to put up a sound doctrine. They're going to chase after a bunch of teachers who will teach what their itching ears would rather hear, but that is not the way of Christianity. You, Christian, hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, and so encourage others. I have with me today a couple of our regular guests here on Cross Defense, Pastor Andrew Preuss. He's pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Gutenberg, Iowa, and St. Paul Lutheran Church in McGregor, Iowa, and Pastor Adam DeGroot, recently uh, transitioning to Albuquerque, New Mexico, where he is part of the St. Andrew Lutheran Church plant. And together, the three of us are going to be looking at Dr. Francis Peeper's Christian Dogmatics, Volume 1, page 49.4 of his discussion on theology as aptitude, which if you've been listening, you know I've been struggling to put together what exactly this theology as aptitude thing is all about. But last week we figured out it's what you need to do to be a pastor. It's what you need to make sure the one you call to be your pastor is able to do for you. Let's go ahead and say hello, though, real quick to Pastor Andrew Preuss and Pastor Adam DeGroot. Got them both here on the line. Gentlemen, good afternoon. Welcome back to Cross Defense. Good, good afternoon. Good to be with you. It's good to hear your voices as well. And I'm going to let you, Pastor DeGroote, if you would just take a moment and throw a little uh, sales pitch for the, the new work you're doing out there in Albuquerque. And I don't mean sales, obviously, but just uh, <laughs> best foot forward. What's going on out there now? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, they've been. Uh, the good news is that they've been uh, they've been active there and have had uh, regular divine services there for two and a half years under the faithful leadership of Pastor Eli Lietzow and um, Clinton Cundiff down there, but mainly uh, through Faith in Christ Lutheran Church. And so then we're con- currently in the fundraising phase of that. So if you have any interest in uh, you or anybody else listening, they have some interest in, in supporting a domestic missionary, um, I'm your guy. Uh, and you can certainly look for us um, to grow missionary uh, and uh, go to the Synods page, and you can find us there. It'll give you a little uh, information about us and a little about St. Andrew. Uh, down in Albuquerque. Yeah, and n- not St. Andrew that we're talking on the line with. He's a saint, too, not to not to knock <laughs> Pastor Preuss, right? But but this is St. Andrew Lutheran Church down there in Albuquerque. It's a new church plant. And if you don't know this about missionaries within the LCMS, when you get involved in network-supported missionaries, it's really like they become your personal missionary to an area. And so, Pastor DeGroote, I believe in the past you've done this. I'm sure you'll do it again. Uh, when people are supporting you, there are times you're going to go out, you're going to visit, you're going to want to have them maybe come and visit you. It's like, it's like your own little piece of the mission and a a cool way to be involved yeah that's true i'll even go as far as oaks north dakota i did that one time in the middle of a snowstorm so that's uh, that's the truth <laughs> well, that was great. I still remember, man. Fireball in my office. You were you, you won over all my ladies in the in the the Bible study, and then because you, you were so sweet and nice and friendly, and then you came into my office and and unleashed the law gospel strength of Pastor DeGroote. It was it was phenomenal uh, all the way wow. around. Yeah, yeah. You know that'll happen when you had too much coffee. This, that's before. the truth. All right, all right. So enough about us. Let's talk about. Dr. Francis Pieper. And what I want you guys both to do for me, because I want to see if, if I'm going to say it right this way again, give me your own spin, and I don't mean that in a negative way, your own take on this whole section 
where Dr. Pieper is defining theology as aptitude. I mean, it's just not the way we talk. So, so what's he really driving it here? What's this section meant to do? Pastor, uh, Pastor Preuss, you want to give it first shot? Well, sure. Um, well, you know, an aptitude is, uh, you know, as he says in, you know, as you would have covered this before, but in, in point, point two and in, in page 48, that it's, it includes the ability of the theologian to confine himself in his teaching entirely to God's Word. And that word ability, you know, is um, um, is, 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 is probably a, a word that maybe we're more familiar with. Um, uh, a habit, you know, the Latin is habitus, so a habit, um, a way of life, a way of thinking. Um, is, uh, is So theology is, you know, we often talk about having, you know, good or bad theology, and really what we're, ta- what we're discussing there is is uh, we're kind of in the realm of sanctification, you know, the life of the Christian, and specifically in this case, the life of the teacher of God's Word. And so there's much more to having good theology than simply having the right textbook answers, um, but that you actually have a, an ability and a desire given by the Holy Spirit um, to speak God's truth clearly um, and to refute error, as we'll be getting more into uh, today. So, so it's a you know it's a it's a it's a habit or a, you know a, a, a task that God gives. Pastor DeGroote? No, I'm with that uh, completely, and I think you know the the understanding that, that that's something that's that that we're given, um, and something that's practiced. I remember the last time with Pastor Wolfmuller uh, about a month ago, we were talking about this in terms of you know, the theology as it's understood, but then the theology also as it's as it's taught and proclaimed. Um, Amongst other pastors, amongst people who are in the church, amongst people who are in our communities and our neighborhoods, and and um, the thing that really comes to my mind is that it's uh, it, it's 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 as much a part of my character. It's rather it's not so much a personality trait as much as it is and has been made a part of what my character is as the divinely called pastor to the people I'm called to serve. The thing that I was struggling with, and continue want to make it clear, I think, is if you take all of these different aptitudes that are talked about here, there is nothing in them, aside from the public teaching part of it, which isn't the aptitude itself, it's what you're called to do, there's nothing in them that we can't or shouldn't really apply to all Christians, right? So so that all Christians should have faith in Christ. All Christians should have a knowledge of the Scriptures. Uh, all Christians should be able to call out false teaching for what it is. And so what I was struggling with was to, to recognize, well, where's the line? You know, what is the difference here? And I think, as, as I just went over it too quickly myself, I suppose, as Pieper defines it right in the first sentence of the first paragraph, page 46 here now, theology in the sense of aptitude or personal qualification. So it's not that every Christian shouldn't have some of these things, but that the pastor is, as Paul says, to be held to a higher account, above reproach, particularly with regard to these things, to the level that, as you say, Pastor DeGroote, it really should be part of their personality, right? It's not Theology is not just something that you talk about on the weekends for fun. It, it literally is something that's driving you, yeah? It's something that is that is compelling you. And, and again, that should apply to all Christians, but the pastor is to be held to a higher standard in this matter. And for that reason, especially, again, I, I think in terms of a calling congregation, this list here is a pretty good list to start your search with. It is, and I and I think you know what. Just kind of looking at some of the the, the, the scriptural references that Peter uses, and no doubt we'll go into them a little bit more. But you know, Titus, uh, the first chapter of Titus. You know, here you have a, a young man who's who's, a, who's been a Gentile unbeliever, and, and he's being placed into this uh, this, this Cretan 
church and in verse 12 of, of Titus 1, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, you know, so, hey, you know, Titus, here you are, thank you very much, you know, you're placed into this congregation where they're filled with liars and beasts and lazy gluttons, and and, and, and your job there is to go and to set things in order and to, and to not only that, but to bring hope and, and, and peace and, and, and the hope that is in the eternal life, and, and you know, it's a it's a daunting task, maybe from a, a practical perspective, but but not at all in the sense that it's it's what the Lord has ordained for that particular church at that, that particular time. Pastor Price, any thoughts before yeah. we hit the text? Yeah, you know, just to kind of uh, sort of uh, elaborating, you know, on um, this the spiritual aptitude and how you know Peter mentions, um, you know, in page forty six that there's no. Uh, uh, theologia irregentiorum, that is a theology of the, unregen- the irregen- irregenerate uh, theologian. Um, and, uh, you know, th- this, it, what's interesting about that is that, in a sense, you can, you can kind of see, you know, we, we know that there are pastors who are not believers and that they're hypocrites, and yet they still kind of practice this outward um, habit or aptitude, and they seem to be able to have you know know how to kind of teach long gospel and yet you know they don't believe it you know that 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 happens we know that happens we acknowledge that in our confessions and that the sacraments and word administered by them are still valid in themselves um and so what this kind of warns us of is that you know just to distinguish between faith and theology faith is not a habit theology is um faith is an organism which receives the promises of God's Word, and which makes it then, faith ends up being more kind of fragile in that sense, because it clings only to the Word, where the habit is something that's worked on, it's developed, and so the, the warning then to people is, you can lose your faith, but still maintain at least outwardly the habit. And so you may think that you are being a good Christian because you know all the right answers and stuff like that, and you kind of have developed this skill sort of in a carnal way, um, but you're puffed up with vainglory, with pride, and you lose your faith. And so I think that the devil can be very deceitful there, where, I mean, a good example of this is where you see theologians who don't believe the gospel and yet know so much about the scriptures and write so much about them. And so it's very important that when we talk about theology as a habit, that it, that we really emphasize that this must presuppose faith. Um, otherwise, we're in a you know we're we're, we're going to fool ourselves into carnal security. Right. For the, particularly for the sake of the pastor that that is being the the cure of souls for mm-hmm. the congregation. You know, of course, the thing for the the listener then is so how do I know that I've got faith and I'm not just tricking myself in this? You know, how how do I know that that I'm not just a hypocrite? Well, if you're asking the question, good for you. It means you you acknowledge you are a hypocrite. Exactly. The an, the answer is never going to be found in you. The answer is going to be found in Christ. And if you hear me saying that, well then you're hearing the right answer. The problem with the hypocrite is he really as, as much as he might be able to say the answer is Christ, he doesn't actually believe it. And and we can't judge the heart on this matter, like Pastor Preuss said. You know, you got that that Donatist heresy of of tying the if efficacy of the ministry to the pastor's person. We want to avoid that. But at the end of the day, if you're looking for comfort, don't look to your own person. Look to the gospel. Look to the centrality of Christ. So d- digging into page forty nine of, of volume one. 
Point number four, this is the fourth thing that a minister of the church, a preacher in the church, a called and ordained servant of the word needs to be able to do and should be judged accordingly, right? According to these words, he says, again, only he is a fit minister of the church who is able to refute false teachers. That is listed as one of the necessary qualifications of an elder or bishop, and he quotes Titus chapter 1 here, holding fast to the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers whose mouths must be uh, stopped. And one more sentence here to add on before we chat about it. Peeper goes on to say, the popular demand that the public teacher refrain from polemics is not supported by Scripture. What he's saying there is that when you hear people say, hey, pastor, just preach the positive stuff, stop preaching the negative stuff. Hey, pastor, just preach the Lutheran truth, don't talk about the Methodist mistakes and or lies. Peeper's saying, well, that's not the way the Bible says to be a pastor. Thoughts? No, that's true. I mean, I think the way that, that people will later, and we'll talk about it more, how people addresses polemics um, is, in a, is in a positive way to be able to understand that, you know, how we how we do this, and, and Pastor Poyce was talking about this as well, is not just presenting the truth uh, as if it's one truth amongst many, but being able to say and speak assertively uh, that it is indeed uh, the truth that has come from God that is, is, is wanting to give us these things, these great gifts, hope of eternal life, um, a God who can't lie, who promised before time began to give us these things. So we, we'll talk about, I guess, in, in a little bit, but then how that polemic is actually done. And I think you, in your, in, you know, how you explained it was how Pieper then goes on to say, preaching the word of truth and then preaching against the heresies that, or the, the, the false teachings that are there is something that actually helps people then, you know, as you'll talk about later on page, uh, page 50, helps people to understand and to be able to grasp what it is that, that, that is really true, and what it is that um, the Lord has for them to, to believe and, and to, to teach and confess. Yeah, and another thing to recognize, too, with, with polemics is that even if we don't have it, even if we're not hearing it um, come from other preachers, um, at least not uh, very close to us, um, we still have our sinful flesh, and our sinful flesh believes all the lies of the devil. And so, the if if it you know, so someone might make the argument, well, we're not hearing people say that anyway. You know, um, that doesn't seem to really be a big fish to fry at this point. Well, does your sinful flesh believe it? You know, are you tempted in this? You know, and and this is something that my brother, my brother Christian, uh, presented this paper at the the catechetical symposium uh, in. in uh, also known as Benderfest hmm. in uh, Sussex, Wisconsin, yeah. last summer. You know, he was he was making a point about how the the you know the the, the Lutheran theologians in the 16th and 17th centuries, you know, guys like Chemnitz, you know, they would they would talk about the, the they would they would address the the claims that the Gospels contradict themselves and stuff like that. Um, but there was no one within shouting distance. Who is really claiming that? But they would still do it because they knew the sinful flesh. They knew that the sinful flesh is is fighting against this. So you know, I think that that's when we fight our battle. Like he says later on, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against our sinful desires. And it's also you know not only the you know Joe Schmo false teacher, you know. So so you can you know it's easy to get uh, uh, secure in your own little bubble. 
um, if you don't realize that, hey, even if there aren't any heretics that we can see right now at this moment, you always have the devil trying to deceive you in league with your sinful flesh. Well, and the devil, he's most definitely not very creative. He kind of sings the same song over and over again, even though he whistles and hums from time to time. Listen to Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO. We'll be right back. Concordia University, Wisconsin, and Mequon overlooks a half mile of beautiful Lake Michigan shoreline. CUW campus is located 15 miles north of Milwaukee with over 70 undergraduate majors, 28 graduate degree programs, and doctorate programs in pharmacy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and nursing practice. CUW offers online learning and accelerated learning at one of nine Wisconsin centers and one in St. Louis. Traditional or accelerated education, CUW has the program for you. CUW.edu. Hi everyone, this is Eric Erkinen inviting you and your golf buddies to participate in Christian Friends of New Americans Golf Tournament. This year the golf benefit will be held Tuesday, October 10th at Norwood Hills Country Club. Funds raised help CFNA welcome refugees and New Americans in the name of Jesus Christ through Bible studies, tutoring, health screenings, ESL classes and scholarships to LCMS schools. Please join us for some great golf while helping support this vital ministry. Information can be found at cfna-stl.org slash golf or call 314-517-8513. I'll say again, cfna-stl.org slash golf or call 314-517-8513. Proverbs 27:17 tells us, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. That's why weekday mornings at 8 a.m., two Missouri Synod pastors test their mettle against the Holy Scriptures, certain that not only will they come out better for it, but so will you. The sword of the Spirit is sharp to the touch, but you need practice wielding it. Check out Sharper Iron, 8 a.m., every weekday on Worldwide KFUO. You definitely want your pastor to have a habit of excellent theology and not the bad aptitude of false theology. Talking about what it takes to be a good preacher on cross defense. Looking at Francis Pieper's Christian Dogmatics, Volume 1, page 49. Picking up where he quotes Titus, teaching us, Scripture admonishes pastors too. It says, avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions about the law for they are unprofitable and vain. Now, I don't think it's talking about, you know, the Ten Commandment law there. But in either case, uh, Pastor DeGroote had a question for Pastor DeProyce during the break, and it does connect to, oh, so okay, so you got genealogies in there. Oh, it's something we don't really argue about anymore. How do you how do you take these things and apply them to the present? Pastor DeGroote? Yeah, no, I mean, I was just uh, I was thinking, you know, as we were through the break, you know, the the idea of, of our, 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 our very strong, um, our history in, in the Lutheran Church, you know, going back to the 15th and 16th centuries, but then also taking into account, um, you know, the question comes to my mind, you know, is the context of, of our modern day, does it, does it more accurately reflect, you know, that of the 15th or 16th century, or are we, are we dealing with something that was sort of like it was for Titus and for Paul in terms of a first century Christian church type of, not an apologetic, but, you know, it's, um, and I can't, I don't know the exact word that's been used, but Clement of Alexandria has um, talked about it in, in the sense of, you know, speaking 
and trying to figure out where it is that, that individuals with false understandings of, of the scriptures most especially would have, um, and finding out what it is that their, their, their thoughts and their, and their goals and their, their aspirations and even their loves would be, but then systematically being able to go back and, and, and to show that basically any love that's, that, that is not connected to and is not derived from Christ um, is, is really nothing at all. So I guess the, the question is not many, it's, it's really one. Where do we think we are in terms of, of the modern-day Church? Are we, are we closer to where they were in the 15th century, or are we closer to where we were collectively as a Christian Church in the early 1st century? Oh, well, um, I don't know, it's kind of hard to say. I mean, one, one thing that I, that I see that the, the, the situation we're in right now is we're in the, the post-Enlightenment age, where... Um, the 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 will and motivation and accomplishments of man have really heightened, and I think that we, in that sense, we are probably closer to the first uh, centuries. Um, and I think, and I and I do think that the, uh, the 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 16th century recognized this as well. And so this, I guess, this also slipped in with the 16th century. But the but this idea of if you look at kind of the false gods. And the false, uh, the pagan religions, their idea of of God is really just you know like Aristotle's prime mover, um, and uh, or just this this far removed God who just sort of intelligence and material just kind of flows from him. But but in the end, he's really just kind of standing far off. And so in the Enlightenment, we got this kind of this this resurrection, more of a resurrection of this God of of reason who's just kind of. He, he, you know, the clock maker God who's who's up in the sky and not really involved in our lives. And so, what we're dealing with today is uh, even in our in ourselves, you know, and and uh, we, we this is the air that we breathe in that that God can't actually be personally involved and invested in our lives and in history. And so, every time we make defenses for the faith, uh, I think we got to be cognizant of that and 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 be careful that we are not simply trying to convince our reason, you know, as though our reason gets the final say. You know, we need to, our reason needs to be sacrificed, and we need to repent before the God of this, of, of, of history, the God who has created us and who has redeemed us and is sanctifying us through His Word and is, you know, involved in our lives. And this is something I think has very much been lost. Um, you know, in the you know 18th, uh, 19th, 17th, 20th century, um, and 21st century, you know, we, we uh, so it's and and you know we kind of I guess there's nothing new under the sun, and each each era has kind of its own unique features. And I'm not you know I'm not a grand historian or anything, but uh, but I do I I do find that this idea of God not really being involved in in history and so and involved in our lives and so therefore the things that we believe and all the details of what we believe don't have this they don't have the same kind of consequences you know i mean you can i mean you see it today with a lot of ecumenical uh stuff where we don't really have to refute error because we don't see god as this judge who's really involved in history and i think that that was very much realized in the 16th century and luther really one of the defining features of Luther is that he understood that God was very much present and involved, and that what we said about his word, his living word, mattered. And today it's more, you know, at best it seems like it's an academic discussion with no real consequences. And so we have to be, I think, very aware of that. 
and remember remember that when we're explaining theology, we're not just explaining um, true statements or philosophical kind of you know interesting theories, but we're explaining the living truth of the living God. Um, I don't know if that really answers your question, but. Well, no, I, and, and, it, and it does. I mean, and I think, you know, it's, it's, it's of course. I mean, I think Peeper's, Peeper's going, and not Peeper, but even Paul and, and Titus is, you know, it's, it's not one truth. You know, Christ is not one truth amongst many. That's a, that's a false understanding. Mm-hmm. That it, it's, we're not looking to, to, to make a case for, for him as the one to be believed. And I think, you know, that goes back to what you had articulated with regard to our understanding of theology and, and then how that, um, you know, the habitus, and, and then also um, how faith is, is something that's, that's given to us. And then Paul will talk about that, and even and, and Pieper does as well, is that he explains very particularly, Paul does, and I think Pieper does as well, of saying that the faith comes through preaching. He says that in, 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 in Titus 1, verse 3, and then he will then go on, in, and I think it's the, the text that Pastor Fiskel reads, is that holding fast the faithful word as has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. And that's, that's in the preaching, but that's also in, in, in the day-to-day and understanding that, that, that these things... And I think you're right. I mean, God is not far off. He, he's, he's very near, and, and he's very near to us um, for... for very good reasons. He loves us dearly, and, and yet he is, is one that is uh, both a God of, of grace, and, 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 and I think that's the thing that's interesting about Titus, is that he begins, you know, in other epistles, Paul will begin with grace and, and peace, but the, Titus, he begins with grace and mercy, and I think that's a key addition, in the sense that he's, a, he's sort of, um, you know, letting Titus know that there's mercy that's needed, because these people are in error. Um, and the mercy is going to come in being able to teach them soundly from the word that has been heard and taught, and from the word that Titus himself is going to be preaching to this to this congregation, this new congregation. And some of that involves convincing the gainsayer, right? He's going to come back to that idea as well. So I, I want to move us forward through the text. I love the conversation, guys. It's great. Uh, but but interestingly to me now, like. Uh, what you're talking about here, this this struggle to hear or to see the way that false teaching takes different forms in history, and yet, like I was saying going on the break, and I really do mean it, that the devil might be whistling or he might be humming, but it's always a riff on the same melody one way or the other, and that's what Peeper has spent so much time really trying to get us to up to this point in the book, that the, the melody of the devil's lie, or maybe I should call it the discord, it is always going to go after Scripture, because by going after Scripture, it can go after the atonement, and by going after the atonement, it can go after grace. And so whether it's the modern Enlightenment or whether it's medieval Rome, right, they, they go after Scripture and grace by the end of the day. And Paul is, is trying to prevent that in, in Crete, Cretan, Crete, right, uh, for, from taking place. We want that to be prevented where we are. Dr. Pieper has like an aside here now, though, in this next sentence, and it's, it's, I, don't, I don't want to detract from the conversation you guys are having, but it, it's maybe just a, a curveball to throw into it. He says, nor dare we engage in polemics from carnal motives and in carnal zeal. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Yeah, the idea here is that 
look, there's a way to engage in this conversation with somebody who's in error, which is, I think that's kind of what you guys are getting at, a little bit of a one-upsmanship, a little bit of a, well, I know more than you, or I'm right and you're wrong, and i got to prove myself. And, and Peeper's basically saying, look, that's not the way to go about any of this. Yeah, exactly. I, I, yeah. Go ahead, Andrew. But, oh, go ahead. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I'm just thinking about it is that, you know, one of the things that you know I, I think that he's saying here is, and, and you know, is, is, is we're, not, we're not leading from behind. And, and what, what I think is simply said by that is, you know, if, if we're looking at it and, and, and believing that, you know, really ourselves as pastors believing the lie of the devil that 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 Christ indeed has not won, that he has not indeed died for our forgiveness, then we're in a very precarious position of having to try to make up ground. Um, however, because the truth is Christ has died. And I think this is the this is kind of the crux here. This is the term. It's it's a reminder for pastors. It's a reminder for Christians. Is that Christ is not lost. He 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 has won. The victory is has been won. It is ours. And as he then goes on to explain it, he says, you know, the polemic then is not that you or I or anyone else tries to get ahead. It is inherent in, 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 in the grace or the mercy or the peace that, 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 that is being given uniquely in the Church, that this is for all people, and, and that is the desire of God himself, that all people would be saved. And, and we are able then to, to do these things, understanding that, yes, there is error that needs to be corrected, but what needs to be perceived, what needs to proceed or come first is the, is, the, is the statement of truth that, in reality, that refutes the lie of the devil that, no, Christ indeed has one. His gifts are indeed for us. Yeah, and you know, one 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 passage that comes to mind is uh, um, in Second Corinthians. And I, at the moment, I can't think of the the chapter and verse, um, but where where Paul is talking about, you know, it's in the context of talking about these super apostles, and um, and he, uh, you know, he's he's he says to the people in Corinth, you know, if I'm in my right mind, it's for your sake, and if I'm not in my right mind, it is for God's sake. And I think a way to understand that is that, you know, when you are speaking the truth and refuting error, you speak clearly that is in a sound mind for the sake of your hearers, that they would hear and understand clearly what the truth of God's Word is. But if you are seen as a fool, then that's because that's for God's sake. You know that's so that's so that God would honor you and that you are not trying to, um, you know. So so when when it comes to polemics, your goal is not to win. Your goal is not to be right. Your goal is to honor God, which the world will hate and will count you as a fool in doing, um, and to edify the church, those who have ears to hear and to be clear for their sake. And so if you're speaking a bunch of empty words and sounding really impressive. Um, and your 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 goal is not to edify the faithful with the truth of God's word, but rather to to impress your peers with uh, your elo- you know your your eloquence and your uh, your ability to uh, to to speak with with better um, you know uh, bigger words and and uh, you know more co- understand show that you understand things that are more complex. Well, then you're beating against the air, mm. yeah. and yeah, so. And, so, it, and I think just real quickly to that is how Paul Paul begins the the epistle to Titus is is that what that word that is you know so often misunderstood uh, you know the English says bond servant but the the Greek is doulos it's a slave I'm a slave to 
to to this word that that has set me free. I'm a slave to to the blood that has it has conquered. Uh, I mean, it's it, it, it. I think absolutely fits in what what you're saying, Pastor Price. I think what is really valuable in this, though, and I think this is something that is true for Peepers Day as well as for our own, we live in a time when people really don't want us to disagree about anything, right? So we kind of pursue peace by means of the lowest common denominator, and yet that would then go against or fly in the face of ever converting anybody at all. Paul does have in Titus a desire to get Titus to convince the gainsayer, right, to, to, to bring the person who doesn't believe in Jesus resurrected from the dead into the fold of faith, but acknowledges that the only way we're ever going to do that is if we also call the gainsayer what the gainsayer is. Or to put it in that ecumenical language that you mentioned a little bit earlier, Pastor Price, the only way we unify the church of God on earth from its divisions of denominational f- splintering is not by pretending that there's no denominations. We actually have to acknowledge the differences if we're ever going to find unity. Now, I think I'm just saying what he's going to say next. So I'm going to go ahead and read that and then throw it back at you guys. He says, It is also to be noted that in Titus 1.9, the words, able by sound doctrine to exhort, precede, that is, they come before, able to convince the gainsayer. That means that the clear presentation of the true doctrine must come before the refutation of false doctrine. The hearers will thus be in a position to see that the polemics are justified and will be able to make the condemnation of false doctrine their own, right? So you're not condemning the falsehood for its own sake. It's to drive you to something which is actually true. But to do that, you do have to come face to face with the fact that there are things that are false. Yeah, and this is throughout uh, the our, our Lutheran confessions take uh, you know take this program where they they first confess positively what is true and then they they, they with each article they end with uh, refutation of the error and uh, you know they're all they're all part they're they really are all um, all kind of take this form um, maybe not quite as structured like in the large catechism and, and you know Luther's kind of I suppose a little bit more flexible and when he brings up the uh you know the, the the false teachers but even then he's always bringing up the true doctrine first and as you said as a way to go back to kind of uh bolster up that truth then you say this isn't what it is and this should be rejected and i think that that helps bring clarity when you when when you refute the error because it's it's narrowing it down uh, more and more and more well if i try to tell you what an apple is by insisting that it's not an orange. But I never actually use the word apple, right? Uh-huh. You're never going to know what an apple is. But if I if I tell you what an apple is and you know what it is, and then I tell you it's not an orange, right, and I use the orange to show you something totally different, now the distinction has meaning in and of itself. So it's not exactly, that yeah. differences don't have meaning by themselves, but they do uh, enhance the meaning which already exists, if I can say it like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. The yeah. group? Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. I mean, and that's not to say too that that, that in the end, uh, once again, we're we're squarely back at at faith. And I don't, I don't know. Uh, yes, certainly there is there is knowledge um, and, and and the ability to determine by virtue of our our reason and rationality. <clears throat> um, but it certainly is not um, that people are saying, well, you know, here's the truth and here's the falsehood. Decide between the two. Um, I think it goes back to what was being said: is that 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 the truth reveals. What what it is that that who we are, what God has done, and what He's continuing to do for us, and the false revealing of the false it, it exposes how the false gods in which we have placed our faith in 
are continuing to fail to fulfill any of the promises that they that they claim to be able to fulfill. Um, and then the, it's not a decision in any way, shape, or form. It's it's a revelation uh, that that can only come through that actual preaching and the teaching. And if but you know, of course, if you're not preaching and teaching, um, <laughs> then then there's absolutely no guarantee that anyone could ever arrive at at the truth of, of, of who God is and what he's done for us. We'll be right back. Cross Defense. Stick around. The Lutheran Church Missouri Synod disaster response is providing relief and mercy in the wake of the devastation of Hurricane Irma. Response teams are assisting local congregations and communities. Please pray and consider donation or volunteer opportunities. You can text to give and donate via smartphones by texting LCMS Irma to the number 41444. Information is online at lcms.org slash Irma. This week on Issues Etc., we'll begin a series on the past, present, and future of confessional Lutheranism with Pastor Paul McCain. We'll have Pastor Tom Baker lead us in a Sunday school lesson on Elijah and the Prophets of Baal. We'll talk with Kelly Schumacher about the vocation of singleness, and we'll discuss the laborers in the vineyard with Dr. Carl Fikencher. Issues Etc., live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. After 66 days at sea, the Mayflower arrived with 102 passengers at Cape Cod, Massachusetts on November 9, 1620. They had intended to land in Virginia, but poor weather and poor navigation led them slightly off course. These first pilgrims were a mix of business traders and those escaping the jurisdiction of the Church of England. They may have brought with them the Geneva Bible, the Bible popular among English Protestants. Many pilgrims were from a sect known as separatists. Their desire was to form independent congregations strictly following their interpretation of the Bible. Their action was prompted by 2 Corinthians 6, 16-18 in the Geneva Bible translation, including verse 17, Wherefore, come out from among them and separate yourselves. Engage with a book that shapes history. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible. Look, it's not like you want to be a jerk on purpose and just try to offend people, but at a certain point, if you're going to talk about something being true, that means that there's something else that isn't true. If the sky is blue and the sky is not yellow, the two are primary colors, and though they can make green together, they are either one or the other, and the same goes, frankly, with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Either he rose from the dead or he did not. You can't hold to both these things, and if we hope to be united as a church, and I'm not just talking the Missouri Synod here, I'm talking about the the Church of God on Earth, the Church Catholic, whatever you want to use, the Una Sancta, the One Church, the way to pursue this in the present time is not to pretend we don't have differences, but to put those differences on the table and then test them by Scripture itself and, and find where, where the truth lies. And so this is why, then, Pieper says, the demands were on page 49 of his Dogmatics, by the way, volume one again, talking with Pastor Andrew Preuss, Pastor Adam DeGroote about this. He says, the demand, the polemical theology, that is the demand acknowledging our disagreements and calling them out, be excluded from Christian theology is contrary to Scripture. And this is kind of the point of the segment here, right? A pastor who is not willing to say, this is wrong, has no business being a pastor. The duty of refuting false doctrine and rebuking false teachers, that's not just saying this is wrong, but that that guy teaches it, and that guy's wrong for teaching it. That duty is laid upon the teachers of the church in Titus 1, 9 through 11. 
and many other passages of Scripture. All prophets and apostles in Christ himself have both proclaimed the true doctrine and condemned the false doctrine. And, you know, yes, Christ's example, probably don't walk around calling your parishioners whitewashed tombs to their face, right? But acknowledge that there is a certain point for calling a thing what it is. Thoughts, gentlemen? I'm sorry. I should pick one of you. I should pick one of you. Andrew yeah, no Price this time. No problem. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, all right. So the, the last thing you said there, calling the thing what it is, and this is a little bit of an elaboration, which is fine because that's what we're doing on this show. Um, the, one of the points I wanted to make about polemics is that polemics is a cross to bear. Mm. And when you look at it as your own uh, bolstering of your own pride, then you totally miss the point that it is it is Jesus saying, bear your cross, pick up your cross and follow me. And that last thing that you said, calling this thing what it is, this is Luther, This is one of Luther's famous lines in his Heidelberg Disputation, his Heidelberg Theses in 1518, where he talks about the theologian of the cross, and that, that, that a theologian of the cross calls a thing what it is. He calls suffering uh, good because it comes from God. And the, suffer- and the reason why people don't want to have polemics is because they don't want to suffer. Yeah. They don't want to bear their cross. And uh, but but obviously there is the uh, there is the danger of looking at polemics as like I said a bolstering of your own ego and a way to show that you're right. Well then you're you're certainly not bearing the cross. You're reaping your benefits now. And and a part of polemics is speaking clearly, refuting clearly, you know, um, and then leaving it to God. And calling it good, and when when pe- and if people get offended, you still call it good. I mean, it, it kind of reminds me of one time a parishioner said to me that her son was really uh, it really bothered him that he couldn't take communion and he goes to a Methodist church or something like that. And I said, and she took this well. Um, she's a very pious pious uh, uh, member. And she, and, but I said, good. That's good because it would be so. It would be much worse if he were to say, oh yeah, whatever. I don't care. The hmm. fact that that bothers him is good because God's working through this. So we shouldn't be afraid of polemics or of disagreeing because if people react negatively, that means that God's actually working. Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, we could, I, I tell you, Andrew, bringing up Heidelberg Disputation and the Theology of the Cross, we could go off on a huge tangent on that reality applied to a number of things, but the calling a thing what it is and the unwillingness to suffer, but on the, on the flip side of that, recognizing the good of suffering, the, the, the fact that the polemics themselves might indeed bring anger our way, but they hated Jesus first, right? That this is actually something to embrace and acknowledge as the way the law particularly works in the world, but also the scandal of the particular gospel. DeGroote? Well, but also the, jo- the joy of that suffering. I mean, you know, and, I, and Andrew, as you're talking about, you know, the, the bearing of crosses, is that, that's, a, that's a tremendous joy. Um, yeah. And, and, that, and that's, a, that's a burden that, that in reality is light because the entire weight of, of the cross has been bore already by our Lord Christ. I mean, and, and to, to speak it, I think, and it also speaks to what people are saying here, is that in the end, um, you know, maybe not even in my lifetime, um, it's not that in the end I hope they say, well, Adam DeGroote was right about that. I hope in the end, as you know, as Paul often says, is that, or even John the Baptist, is that they don't see me, but that they see Christ. And they see that, that the efficacy of the Word that has been true from the beginning and will be until the end is, is that which is favorable and, 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 and benevolent to them as the hearers. And that, that through the preaching, although it may be difficult, but yet is great joy. 
that through them, and then and you see that you know as 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 the you know the pastors are exhorted to you know I think of and I can't I think it's Ezekiel the text from you know three year lectionaries a couple of weeks ago where it says that if the if the pastor you know the one given charge uh, you know fails to exhort uh, the hearers that the blood of the hearer and the blood of the hearers will be on the hearer and the one who failed. But if if you do if you do exhort and the blood you know it's it's saying and I think in essence that that certainly we we have the ability to say no this isn't true and I'll do it my way I guess we'll, you know as Frank Sinatra would um, but in the end uh, you know the truth is is and will be revealed to all. Uh, on the last day. The, the habit of the pastor ought not to be to increase himself, but to decrease and to see Christ himself increase. And, and maybe that's kind of getting at what the main idea is here. Now, we got one more paragraph I want to try to make sure we get through today. So I'm going to read the whole thing and then give you guys the, the, the bulk of the time at the end to, to respond to it. It's the same idea, though, just being repeated with a quote from Walther that sounds like fighting words to our modern ears. Walther does not go too far when he writes this. A man may proclaim the pure doctrine, but if he does not condemn and refute opposing false doctrine, does not warn against the wolves in sheep's clothing, the false prophets, and unmask them, he is not a faithful steward of God's mysteries, not a faithful shepherd of the sheep entrusted to him, not a faithful watchman, there's your Ezekiel word, on the walls of Zion, but as the word of God says, an unfaithful servant, a dumb dog, a traitor. This is all still Walther right now. The terrible consequences of the minister's failure to use uh, the uh, the refutation is before our eyes. Many souls are lost and the church is deeply hurt. Polemics are absolutely needed, not only because a doctrine is more fully comprehended in the light of its antithesis, that's that apple-orange thing from earlier, but mainly because the errorists, the, the, the people who teach falsely, so craftily mask their error behind a show of truth that simple Christians, if not forewarned, are, despite their love of the truth, only too easily deceived. The pastor cannot wash his hands in innocence, pleading that he has always preached the full truth if he did not at the same time warn against the error and, when necessary, identify it by naming the errorist. If his sheep, either while he is still serving or after he has had to leave them for another field, become the prey of the ravening wolves in sheep's clothing, he is guilty of their blood. Again, a reference to that Ezekiel text, a set of Walther's pastoral theology translated by Fritz. I mean, like it or not, that's that's the that's the founder of our church, buddy, guys. <laughs> yeah, and it was it was as unpopular then as it is unpopular yeah. today. Amen, amen. Speak to that and, a little bit. And well, you know, at that time, you hear the word for the listeners. Um, maybe they're familiar with it. Um, uh, uh, it's called schmuck. You call someone a schmuck. Well, <laughs> there's actually historical. Well, I'm making kind of making this up, but th- this is true. That if you're going to call, if you if you want to know what a schmuck is. Um, there's a guy named uh, Samuel Simon Schmucker, who was, uh, you know, one of the lead theologians of the kind of American Lutheran synods um, uh, at the time, you know, uh, you know, kind of at the time of Walter. Um, and uh, he, uh, what he did was he came up with an edition of the Augsburg Confession where he took out all of the negative theses, that is, all of the theses at the end of each article that said, we condemn this group for teaching this, and we condemn this false teaching uh, because of such and such, he took all of them out because he wanted to be positive. And so, what you call someone who refuses to refute error but only speaks positively, thinking that he's actually speaking the truth, 
because he's technically saying true things while avoid while allowing the wolves to uh, to to spread their lies. Someone who does that is called a schmuck. So so don't call someone a schmuck unless he you know unless that's what he's doing. So I I, I kind of I think I I may have made that up. I think other people have made that up too. It's kind of an easy. You know, when you learn about that history, then... Well, it's, okay, it's, a, it's, it's a nice hook for teaching the history of Samuel Simon Schmucker, you know, the Pennsylvania yeah. Ministerium and, <laughs> and the, the recantation yeah. of the Augsburg Confession from the, the American end. He basically cut a bunch of holes in it. And and this was who Walther refused to shake hands with, right? They wouldn't join with. And they were very much a part of the, not dialogue so much as debate back in the day in Missouri, and it was despised, despised for holding to a firm confession of the unaltered Augsburg Confession. In fact, they even put it on this church signs back then. They didn't say Lutheran on the sign. It would be like St. Andrew's Church of the Unaltered Augsburg Confession, because they wanted to emphasize how important mm-hmm. it is to cling to the entire thing. Pastor DeGroot? Yeah, no, and I, and I think, you know, in the middle of that paragraph, I mean, he's, he's, he's saying what, what, is, what is needed. I mean, he's not, he's not calling us a name. I, I, I think about, you know, I read early on in seminary is, is, the, is the daunting task of the overseer or the pastor, is that, you know, and, and, and really having to swallow hard and realizing that, you know, what was going to be required of me and, and, and really coming to the understanding that, that I was not going to be capable of, 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 of doing these things. And yet <clears throat> that's why the seminary is, is there to, to, to train us and to, to, to rear us, to teach us and to give us this theology, um, so that we can be the faithful shepherd, the, the watchman of the walls of Zion or, you know, um, these things. And, and, and he's absolutely right. I mean, if, if I, you know, I'm an unfaithful servant or the dumb dog or a traitor. Um, you know, I have abdicated my duty as as the watchman. Um, and and the, the polemics then, then he goes on and he says, you know, he, the polemic is absolutely necessary, and it is necessary in order to be able to, if nothing more, reveal the very need of forgiveness, the very need of Christ's atoning blood for us, and the very need of the mercy that only God can give us. It's as simple as, as the image that he uses, that Walther uses there, right? If you're a shepherd, and you got some sheep, and there's a wolf, and you ignore it, but you feed the sheep. Hey, sheep, here's some grass. Ignore that wolf. Don't worry about it. You know? Not, a, not really a wolf. Well, see, the wolf's going to eat the sheep. <laughs> there's just kind of no way around it. You have to, in fact, go after the wolf with your staff. That's why you have the staff in large part, not entirely, but in large part, is to is to go after the wolf and to, as Jesus himself says of the good shepherd himself, lay down your life for the sheep. So, you know, it's it's... He hasn't asked most of us who are pastors in the present day to shed blood yet, but what he does ask in every age is that the pastor call out the false teaching for what it is. And if you have an individual, let's just use, I don't know, the Pope, right? You have an individual who stands officially on a false teaching. Was the Pope officially teach that without him ordaining the sacrifice of the Mass, you can't actually be saved, right? we got to call that out for what it is and say, no, Scripture doesn't teach that. Jesus doesn't teach that. Here's why it's wrong, because it, it, it steals the glory from Christ himself and teaches you to trust in your works. This is a problem, right? And a pastor has to be able to do that. And if he's if a pastor comes along and says, I won't do that, I won't call out the false teacher, now you know you got a pastor who, frankly, is a false teacher himself. Self. Yeah, yikes. And, and he's saying that he won't lay his life down for you. And you notice what Jesus, how is, what got Jesus crucified? What was he doing? If you read the Gospels, yeah. you read all the stuff that's leading up to, to the Passion, what got him crucified was opening his mouth and talking and refuting error and making the religious leaders upset with him. And then they were eventually able to make, you know, get the crowds on their side. 
And so, you know, you, you bear the cross um, for the sake, not well, it's for your sake, because God blesses you through it, teaching you that, that Christ died for you and giving you the great comfort of, of, of his balm of salvation, but also for the sake of your hearers, that you as an under-shepherd are laying down your life. And maybe, you, maybe your life isn't taken from you in the same way as it is with Christ, but you still are. The world is always against the truth that you proclaim, and especially when you refute and expose the works of darkness, as St. Paul tells us to do in Ephesians. Yeah, and it's, and so it's really the laying down, and, and, and I think in an American context, it's a laying down of an ego, it's a laying down of, of an eisegetical understanding, in other words, what I think the text means, um, and it's, it's laying that aside, crucifying that. Uh, and, and understanding instead that, that as the one who stands in the stead and by the command of Christ, that he is the one that has joyfully put us into that post uh, and will see to us both in the dispensation of, of, of the gospel, obviously, but he will, he will gird us as we, as we stand against the, 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 the wiles of the devil in the world and our flesh, and, and, and to not fear in the midst of those things, but to stand fast um, uh, against those things that will inevitably beat us. You're listening to Pastor Andrew. Oh, go ahead. You got you got thirty seconds. Oh yeah, no, I was just going to say, uh, you know, uh, Paul says in Second Corinthians one that if we are afflicted, it is for your benefit, and and uh, this is something an encouragement for pastors and parishioners, but especially for pastors that when you suffer for the truth and you speak out, there are those who don't have as loud of a voice as you do who take great comfort in mm. your suffering. Mm. Amen. That's Pastor Andrew Preuss. He's pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Gutenberg, Iowa, St. Paul's Lutheran Church in McGregor, Iowa. You've also been listening to Pastor Adam DeGroote. He is a church planner and pastor of St. Andrew Lutheran Church Plant in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And if you don't know how to spell Albuquerque, I promise you it's quirky, but not quite spelled the same way. Gentlemen, thank you for being on Cross Defense again with me today. Good to be here. My pleasure. So, you know, there, there's you got to refute the false teaching. This goes, it goes for the pastor first, right? We're looking at the habit of the pastor, the requirements of a pastor. What is a pastor's job, according to Scripture, to do? Refute the false teaching. That, that's part of it. It goes for the Christian, too, though, as well. You, you have to be able to at least have your nose know that something smells bad. You know, you don't want to be listening to that. You got to be able to call the guy on late night cable broadcasting, wiping his head with a, a garment and saying he'll he'll send it to you with the prayer juice on it so you can have your best life whenever. You got to be able to know that guy is a liar. He is a hireling trying to take advantage of you for his own life. You got to be able to call those things out. And we talked about this today, too. You got to be able to do it without being a complete nincompoop about it, without being cruel, mean spirited, or thinking is simply a matter of your pride. You just get to be right and they get to be wrong. Of course, they're going to accuse you of that either way. What a narrow line to walk, huh? I mean, it's almost what? Impossible? Well, yeah, ultimately it is. Ultimately, to be above reproach is beyond you, but it's not beyond Jesus for you, which is why we flee back time and time again to the grace of his cross. It's why we call out, particularly those teachings that go against his cross. It's why we put our hope in his cross in all things. You listen to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Jonathan Fisk. It's been a wonderful Monday afternoon with you. Catch you next time. You're listening to Cross Defense, where old school theologians never stop rocking on. You've been listening to Cross Defense, produced by Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Your support is vital for this program to continue. 
To learn about giving opportunities, call Mary at 314-996-1518. Or you can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO.